So the, the possibility of hurt is in every single relationship. Even though I've been married 33 years, I can't force my wife to stay married to me. So there's incredible vulnerability and risk to even being married as long as I have. You can't stop the potential of hurt, but if you stop investing in your heart, you're guaranteeing hurt. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Today we're bringing you another Love and Life Live, which Elliot hosted last week at Judson University in his interpersonal relationships class. We'll jump right into it, but I did want to mention two things. One, we had a little glitch in the audio, so initially it's not as clear because the audio is actually coming from Tim's phone, which was being used for the Instagram live stream, but just hang tight until about 10 minutes in when we start picking up the audio from our lapel mics and it gets much clearer. The second thing to note, throughout the live, Elliot talks about various animals, teddy bears, owls, sharks, turtles, etc. He's referencing a model for conflict styles, which compares our typical response to conflict to animals' behaviors. So when he talks about his teddy bears out there, he means his students who took the self-assessment earlier in the semester and found out which animal they are in terms of how they respond to conflict. I just figured I'd mention this because otherwise you might be wondering why Elliot's calling his students various animals. (laughs) Also, if you're curious as to which conflict style you might have, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at loveandlifemedia.com because I'm going to be sharing some of these self-assessments in future newsletters with our community. And now, let's get into our second Love and Life Live. Welcome to Love and Life with Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and Pastor Elliot Anderson. Welcome, Instagram followers. Are your beliefs sabotaging your relationships? And I just did a newsletter about it, and Elliot's like, I'm getting so much of this same question. I'm seeing this with the couples I work with. Let's let's talk about it on your podcast. And he joined me, and of course, you guys know, Elliot is Elliot, and I kept getting all this feedback, like, oh my gosh, your brother, this is my favorite. They'd be like, I love your podcast, but when your brother comes on, we really love your podcast. So all I said to that was, then we need more Elliot. And so now he's a frequent flyer, frequent special guest star, and so thanks Instagram community, thanks Judson community. We are excited to talk about interpersonal relationships. And Elliot, this is, this is his class here at Judson. And this is kind of a unique night where we're gonna talk specifically about romantic relationships. I'm just letting the Instagram community know because you guys know. And so the students in the class were asked to bring their significant other or their spouse because the content is gonna be so relevant to all of us who are on our love journey, whether we're single and looking to prepare ourselves for a strong, solid, beautiful, healthy relationship, or whether we're already in something really special and we wanna make sure we are fortifying it and getting in all the skills that we can so that we can love each other well and love each other respectfully and thrive in our relationships and not just have mediocre relationships. We're not about that life. 
We are about, in love of life, we want to thrive with epic, extraordinary relationships. Amen. Dr. Karen, Love and Life, uh, listeners, I've been teaching this class now at Judson for 31 years, and Dr. Karen herself was in the very first class. Yes, she got an A, because I don't think she ever got anything but A's. Did you ever get a single B in your entire life? Yes, I did. One? No, one. One to one? Yeah. I don't think I believe it. Mom, is that true? <laughs> yeah, we forgot to well, say, Mom's here. Mom, did you get any B's? Yes. Okay, one in like physics. 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 Yeah. All my math problems were because of my mother. I'm just letting you know up front. Yeah, math is not the greatest skill in the Anderson family. But I'm so glad to be here. So glad to do this lecture in a broader sense than just with my wonderful class. So we're going to do normal style class. We're going to go right through our notes like we always do. Just you don't have to fill in this time. So we're starting with what is a good definition of intimate relationships? It's partners. So people who've decided to do something together in relationship. Partners that have affection, trust, love, and commitment for each other. My class, if you got your pencils out, put a little box, put a little box next to that definition and put some initials of all those four categories around that box. Affection, trust, love, and commitment. We've said this many times before, love is not enough to make a relationship great. It can't be just on love. Otherwise, there'd be no divorces in this country or this world. No one gets married without loving each other, or at least it's very, very rare. So love is not enough. It takes all kinds of other things. This is kind of like a box, affection, trust, love, and commitment. And then because of our belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, put a little cross right there in the middle. That's in the middle of your box. We're taking a first Peter look here. Christ is the cornerstone. So we just made a box stone, and we put Christ there in the middle. Affection, trust, love, and commitment. What Jesus gave to us, and then what we can give to each other. It doesn't mean you can't give those things to another partner if you don't know the Lord or don't love the Lord. But if you do, you have an easier access because that's what the Holy Spirit does for us when it resides in our heart and soul and even is an intermediary for us in allowing us to have those opportunities. So we're starting with some non-romantic, as far as the purity of the discussion here, with our characteristics of intimate conversations. So any kind of conversation you have, characteristics of those, four main ones. The first is emotional disclosure. Sensitive, private, and vulnerable personal information. Now some of us struggle by giving too much disclosure too soon. Karen and I did a podcast all about the pacing of intimacy, and we'll probably repeat that one in the spring, combining the sex class and other things all over again. But we can't disclose everything right away. It's a slow, steady pace to build up that emotional disclosure. After I gave my first sermon ever, Dr. Stuart Ryder, who's so well-known here and several things on campus are named after him, said, Ellie, you don't have to tell them everything you know about the Bible in one sermon. And that's a very good analogy for us in dating. You don't have to tell this boyfriend or girlfriend everything you know about yourself in one first date. Emotional disclosure. Second is mutual understanding, verbal and nonverbal comprehension and connection. Class, which one is more distinguishable or honest, the verbal or nonverbal? Thank you, my great little counselors and future psychologists here. The nonverbal must align. So when we're trying to understand each other, we're trying to discuss and learn about each other, 
If the nonverbal is not aligning with the verbal, that's an indication to seek more clarification. Not to necessarily call them out or yell at them or do anything else. It's just saying, hey, it seems like, and then give a little response of what we're seeing. The third is simply warm feelings. It sounds so generic and so uh, soft, and all my teddy bears out here, you should be happy. Warm feelings, positive and content feelings during and after the conversation. Positive and content feelings. Now, one of the questions I think your generation would ask me normally is, I struggle with contentment all the time. So how do I know if I'm feeling contentment with this boy or girl when I'm out on a date or building a relationship? And that's a very good question. You'd have to just say, where's my baseline of contentment? Where's my normal anxiousness? And do I feel calmer or more peace or more relaxed with this person? Now, if you don't feel more, you feel a little, if you don't feel less, you feel a little bit more, it doesn't necessarily mean it's negative if that's just anticipatory or excitement about getting to see them. But once you're engaged in some conversation or doing some things together, it starts to calm down a little bit. It doesn't mean your anxiety is cured by a good boyfriend or girlfriend. It's just a barometer for this warm feeling that we genuinely feel positive to be in their presence. That's super important. I deal with tons of marriages in massive trouble. And so sometimes couples will say things like, I don't even like to be in the house with them. That's the opposite of warm feelings. Right? That's very cold feelings. That's usually based on a bunch of hurt, some trauma, some abusive behaviors and reactions and commitments. It's not a random thing that occurs, but it can be a barometer. The warmth you feel now in these early stages of relationships, you want to carry that on and enhance it. That's why we do what we do to try to get couples to enhance it. And, and don't say, well, we have a good relationship when you could really make it a great relationship. And then the fourth one, safe and secure. Sense of confidentiality and trust in the person. Sense of confidentiality and trust. Now, some people talk a lot more than others. Karen and I are talkers, so we express a lot. My wife is not a super disclosing, natural, external communicator. So early in my career of teaching and preaching, I would tell stories about her and not ask her permission. That didn't go over very well. That was not being safe and secure with my wife's heart and soul, even though she was glad I was blessing and ministering others. I need to take a context relationship and style and personality. Now at this stage in life, she's fine. But at that stage in life, she wasn't. And because you guys know she was a shark, you know I got confronted about it. It didn't get passively removed. So emotional disclosure, mutual understanding, warm feelings, and safe and secure. Though I have them numbered one through four, for yourself, like we always do in integration, mark them down in the order most important to you. Mark those four down in the importance for you. Karen, do you want anything to jump in before I hand out their intimacy thing? No, I just did like that you talked about the anxiety piece because I have a lot of women in my community that I've worked with in my group sessions and consultations and they, they frame themselves as having anxious attachment. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later. What I'm thinking a lot of times is that that word anxiety and attachment styles are really prevalent now, which is great because we're helping us all understand relational dynamics better. But I think sometimes I mistake those butterflies and just that natural, that you're taking a risk when you start dating someone. It's a risk. You can get your heart broken, and no one wants to get hurt. 
but that's inherent to the process of, of finding deep intimacy. There's the risk that this one won't work out and you will be hurt. And so there's an inherent anxiety as part of that. So I really, I just wanted to underscore what you said. Just because you feel some nerves, that doesn't mean that this person isn't safe. It just means that you guys aren't to the place where you have that security yet, which you can't rush as well when you're talking about pacing as well. That's all I want to say. Yeah, there's another document I have that I'll send out to the class called Intimacy Imperatives. And that's the one we used last time in the spring. And that talks about how you build that intimacy layer and development forward. And when you do, each kind of layer takes another investment. And so it's common for couples to come to me and say, well, we're thinking about engagement. We're not sure. I love that I'm getting more pre-engagement counseling. Now that's fantastic. What a great generation that is desiring that. We're thinking about that engagement, but we're not sure. And when I talk to them individually, it's not uncommon for one of the couples to say, well, it seems too risky. What if I go to that next layer of investment and then I get hurt? One of my responses is, will it hurt now if he or she broke up with you? Well, absolutely. Well, is it going to hurt more if you invest more or less if you invest less? But if you invest less and it breaks up anyway, you're already hurt. So the, the possibility of hurt is in every single relationship. Even though I've been married 33 years, I can't force my wife to stay married to me. So there's incredible vulnerability and risk even being married as long as I have. You can't stop the potential of hurt, but if you stop investing in your heart, you're guaranteeing hurt. Sounds like a love hack. Uh, I literally was hacks. just like, yeah. oh, we got to make sure we get that <laughs> clip of audio. That's, that's, gonna, that's going viral. <laughs> so I'm going to hand out now a document of intimacy evaluation. So the only intimacy that's not on there, which probably disappoints you, is sexual intimacy. I don't have that one on there. The reason being, way too often, people equate now sex with intimacy, and it makes me mad. Sex is a wonderful form of intimacy, but sex is not intimate. Couples will come up to me all the time and say things like, well, we're not that intimate yet. And then I'm like, why are you dating that? And they're like, no, no, I mean, we're not having sex yet. Well, I said, that's great, but sex is not intimacy. So this document has nine different forms of intimacy, and you evaluate how your current relationship is doing in each one. We're going to go to the next one now, steps in friendship. And again, for the thematic of this class, let's assume that friendship has some romantic inclination, so we're building that regard. The first is initiation. Someone starts the conversation or interaction. Again, from you guys teach me about your culture, your generation, that is most often now like trading snaps. Is that how you say it? How do you say it appropriately? So I don't sound like an idiot. Was that close enough? Okay. And so that kind of Snapchat exchange is fine for initiation because that's the culture. Make the next build up in person when you can or FaceTime at the very least. I totally understand the initiation process. Well, I don't understand it, but I appreciate it because <laughs> I love your generation too. And do something from there next. Second is responsiveness. The other person responds to that invitation or the initiation. And Karen and I would both talk about recognizing if they're not into you much and you're looking for an answer quickly and you don't get one for three weeks, that should be some type of indication. Not necessarily to read something into that as the finality or determination, but you got to recognize responsiveness. I know because of my own children all being college age and teaching classes that sometimes there's a intentional delay, which is communicating something so you don't look too forward or too interested. I understand that as well. That's the flirtation game through secondary intimacy. 
Again, just try not to manipulate or play games about it and be authentic. And once you're at that point where you're trying to build some type of potential solidification, be clear about what that boundary is and is what is needed. So both of you aren't apprehensive and, and anxious for no reason. Self-disclosure is next. Support, affirming the person and the process. What's the three A's? Appreciation, affirmation, and acceptance. So that's definitely true in all relationships and vitally important, critically important with romantic relationships. You guys might find this hard to believe because outside of uh, one of our students, no one here is married, except the people on stage and the producer. <laughs> and to recognize how important those three A's are in a marriage as you're already married. So I have had couples in my office, married 20, 30, 40 years sometimes, and I'm having them do exercises to affirm each other and appreciate each other right there in my office because they've gotten so out of habit. And instead, the three A's of negativity or breaking down intimacy is accusation, assuming, and attacking. So as you're trying to build this friendship and potentially build a romantic interest, don't get caught assuming. If you need clarity, seek clarity. Don't feel like you're needy or clingy but just try to get some type of clarity so you can affirm, accept, and appreciate. Conflict management, understanding how you are in conflict, what style you are, and how to build relationship through conflict. If there's probably any number one issue I see with couples who are married I'm working with is they assume all conflict is negative and all conflict is bad. And to say, well, we have these arguments. I'm like, okay, well, that's bad. No, it's not. The argument is natural. If you're not having any arguments with your romantic partner ever, you don't have any real intimacy. Now, I'm not saying you have to fight a lot, but if you have zero arguments or zero disagreements, there's some type of codependent enmeshment that is likely not healthy. Now, some couples argue a lot and enjoy that. My wife and I argue plenty. We enjoy that. That works for us. That doesn't work for other couples, and that is totally fine. But to never have a disagreement is absolutely humanly impossible if you have true intimacy in a relationship. Can you speak to the codependent part? Because you mentioned that not fighting could, could be, not always, but could yeah. be, one reason could be codependency. Explain that, please. Yeah, when we, when we cater to our partner to avoid anything that would be possibly uncomfortable or awkward, when we're catering to them by not being authentic about what we really need or what we really want or what really frustrated us, even if it smooths it out, my teddy bear's in here, even if it smooths out that moment, it builds up frustration or it builds up resentment. And even though there's peace at the moment, if it's a false peace, if it's peace baked on simply not wanting to have an argument or disagreement, that doesn't build intimacy. It might make it harmonious for the evening, but nonstop catering or pleasing without being honest about needs, wants, desires, frustrations, hurts, builds Intimacy that's not strong. Intimacy that can be so pliable, it can break easily. So I don't want you necessarily, if you're not both confronters, to feel like, oh, we have to have a knockdown fight about this, but learn how to negotiate what those needs are and negotiate what the desire is and even be able to kindly and graciously say, my shark's out there, kindly and graciously say what's bothering you so that your avoiding partner can receive it. Remember that language talked about in conflict? We have to receive the conflictual thing rather than defend it, rather than rebuke it. Receive it, 
appreciate them for it, affirm them for it, accept them for it, doesn't mean you have to agree with what they're saying. We agree, affirm, and accept the person. Then we negotiate about what the issue is. That's a very delicate, nuanced skill in a partnership. If you guys can master that in your first four or five years together, my goodness, you're on your way. It's going to be fantastic. I do this stuff for a living. My wife's next communicator probably took us 11 to 12 years to get a pattern down that worked really well for us. Any other comments about that? Yeah, I just was thinking we have to do an entire podcast episode on conflict in marriage. Because, you know, we talk, like, you and Ange are here, and my husband Dan and I are here. And, but I think it's a really good point to look at conflict. It can be seen, oh, they fight a lot, so it's got to be negative. But, I mean, you, you explained that so well, so thank you. Yes, no problem. All right, next section. Characteristics and long-term relationships. How do you get 58 years like my parents had? How do you get 33 like I have or nine? Ten. 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 I'm so sorry. Ten like Dr. Karen has, which is fantastic. Independence and interdependence, not codependence. So independence and interdependence, not codependence. So the visual I give is we have two strong people and we keep growing independently towards each other. It's not grow like this. That's codependence. We grow stronger individually. You should not be sacrificing your entire dream for your partner before you're even married. That's not appropriate. That's too much. Now, I'm not saying you might not change it, Maybe an opportunity comes for your potential partner somewhere different. You're like, wow, I'd really like to be with them still and see if this grows. So I'm going to go to grad school here instead of here. That's fine. That's changing. But to say, well, I really want to be like a neuroscientist, but my partner wants to go an archaeology digs in Egypt and said, I either go with them or we're done. I would say then be done because that's a different level of sacrifice that I don't think is a, a commitment variable so quickly in that process. I'm overstating it just to give you a conceptual idea that you don't want to lose your identity in a partnership. You want to gain a second identity. You have your individual identity, and then you have a couple identity. Again, there's several podcasts, Karen and I talk about pieces of that that are really important. Now, as you build oneness, the scriptural term oneness means that you're a representation of each other all the time. So I am up here as Pastor Elliot, Professor Anderson. I'm also up here as Angie's husband. So there's a representation of oneness even within my independence because we're interdependent together. That makes sense well enough, class? There seems to be some head nods. Ideology and philosophy of life. These are one of those subtle undercurrents of a relationship. You don't want to get into marriage and realize that your partner has built their philosophy on gaining materialism and success and status, and you are completely on the other end and really want to sell everything you have and and go live with the poor. Both are fine. Both can be scripturally based. Wanting status, wanting money, it's a spiritual gift often, and you can create more things for the kingdom. So don't view that kind of drive as necessarily evil or wrong, but those don't align. You can work a marriage or a partnership with those, but you're going to have to do a lot of talking, a lot of conversation, a lot of understanding. So recognizing it helps if the ideology and the philosophy of life is similar. Communication regularly and positively. Regularly and positively. What does regularly mean? You must discuss that with each other. So you understand the bigger the commitment, the stronger the commitment, the longer the commitment, the more that should be very well cleared between the two of you. 
Respect the person, beliefs, and passions. When we get to our warning document, we'll talk a ton about that one, so I'm not going to go on. It's important. The values of morality, spirituality, and ethics. Those values. If you're dating someone and they're regularly cheating on stuff with their academics, maybe they're stealing from somebody, maybe not big things, but little stuff here, little stuff there, and it really, really bothers you and you're not saying anything about it. I'm not saying you have to break up with them. I'm just saying have the conversation and discuss it because that's a pretty big deal. And if someone is involved in that kind of lack of ethics or morality, that usually flows in everything else in life as well. Maybe not dramatically, like you're going to be a prison wife or a prison husband someday, but it still can be significant and it needs to be conversationed. Comfortability and authenticity. Are you yourself? Are you able to be yourself with your partner? That is so gigantic. Able to be yourself. When I am watching you guys the way I know you decently by the time you're juniors or seniors, and if I've had conversations with you before, you've been in some classes, and then you start dating someone, you know I'm analyzing anyway, because that's just who I am. But I'm watching to see, is this person the same person I see over here? Is this the person I saw as a sophomore with her girlfriends or boyfriends? And now she's able to be that in that dating relationship. It doesn't mean that guarantees marriage, but it means you're able to be authentic and be you, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the silly, the smart. You shouldn't have to hide your giftedness with your partner. You should be able to be fully you. Then freedom and affection, freedom and compassion, and freedom and empathy. Affection varies for people. I am a very, very touchy person. <laughs> so I am on the affectionate overscale. Part of my ADHD is that need for touch and, and sensory. So other people might not be. So recognizing what does my affection needs compared to my partner's affection needs. Because again, in my office, I've had many wives say something to their husbands like, well, he's just not very affectionate. And the husband will say, I hug you every morning before I leave and I hug you every night before we go to bed and I give you a kiss and I sit next to you. That's not her measure or value of affection. It's more than just a touch or a hold or a kiss. It's affectionate words. Affection is also attentiveness bringing some serving to him or her. So we have to understand and be clear about what these words mean to recognize, are they building in the long-term relationship? Dr. Karen, any additional thoughts about those elements? Yeah, as you were reading those points, what came to mind is there's two kinds of ways of looking at relationships. You hear opposites attract. And then you hear, well, wait a minute, birds of a feather flock together. And after having Elliot read that list, which do you think of those two kind of adages that we hear in our vernacular, which of the two do you think would probably build into a more solid, stable, happy, long-term relationship? Yeah, so I, and for the Instagram people, you may not have heard, birds of a feather. So marital research shows that the more we have in common, it's money in the bank. And what we mean by that, I learned this in my marital therapy class way back when I was at Wheaton for my master's, we talk about money in the bank as being, that's just an easy deposit. So if the more similarities you have, the less you have to fight about. And so much of what you fight about in marriage, and Elliot and I have such different experiences. He married quite young. I married much later. And so when you're young and you're still figuring out who you are, and so your trajectory in marriage has been a little bit of like you and Angie growing together and finishing off their adult development together, not finishing off. I mean, we're almost growing. 
But whereas I was more fully baked when I met my husband, but the idea of knowing who you are and then who your potential partner is and seeing that common ground, it's just fluid. It's just easy. So for example, my husband and I are both very extroverted. We both love having big social circles, love having parties. We just love being with people. So an, an example of this would be like Dan might come home on a Friday if we have no Friday night plans and be like, I just texted Jeff Hibbert. We're going out with Junior and Jeff tonight. And I'm like, cool. How would Angie take that? Yeah, the shark <laughs> would be out. Right, and I just don't even bat an eye because it's not anything to fight about because I also have that very, that, er, like, that desire to communicate, hang out, be with people as much as possible. So it's an easy fluidity because he doesn't have to worry. Is Karen going to get upset about this? So the idea of just having that money in the bank now, I know sometimes someone is so different from you and they're so kind of sexy and cosmopolitan because they came from another part of the world and, and all that can be great too. But if your core values are not in alignment, you talked about it, philosophy, a way of doing life. So much of marriage is just wanting to do life in a similar way. And we sometimes underestimate how important that is to make our marriage strong and easy. I don't think anyone's like on their wedding day, we're looking for a really hard marriage. I want it to be difficult. We're gonna dig in and we're gonna make it work. I mean, sometimes you have to do that and those folks are gonna work with Elliot and he's gonna help them. But since we're, most of us are on the, the front end of this, let's go for someone who we have those core values with. And again, marital therapists will tell you, you don't even realize you're making deposits in the bank because it's just so easy for you. So then when you do have to take a withdrawal, which I'm sure you use that analogy oftentimes with your couples, you know you've already built in so much. You have a big savings account of similarities, of similar ways of doing life. That was just my thought when you were reading yeah, this. That's what I wanna, came to mind. I'm going to piggyback on that a little yeah. bit. So the opposites do attract in some regard. So extroverts do tend to partner with introverts quite a bit. Sharks do tend to date or marry turtles or teddy bears quite a bit. Someone who's an external processor tends to often date internal processors. Someone who's a global thinker will often date or marry a detail thinker. So those things do happen. And those opposites are fine. They're very workable and can be negotiated. What's very difficult to negotiate or work on is values. One of the workshops I'm doing is power dynamics in young marriage. And so I just use seven main things, family and faith and friends and money and sex and communication, and I'm forgetting one. <laughs> so I wish I could have all seven pulled right off. I forgot one. But those seven, I think, need to be pretty strongly aligned. That allows all the differences and variables of personality and temperament to match in those. And I have a document, of course, I create always, that allows you to work on those seven and kind of look and see, how are we negotiating these? So it doesn't mean that someone who grew up with a really difficult family and has some appropriate separation from them can't marry someone who's like totally into their family and it's really smooth and healthy and happy. That doesn't mean that can't be together, but what will your family value be? One might say, you know what? My family's so messed up, I don't want any kids. The other one goes, oh my goodness, I want seven or eight. That's gotta be negotiated prior to marriage. That's the kind of example of the differences, the variables, the opposites, and the values. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. All right, our next category, relational uncertainty. 
First one, absence of clarity about the level of friendship. We talked about that a little bit already. I prefer, I'm going to be old school here, I prefer the men take some leadership in this regard. And if you're feeling the desire to be exclusive, to open your mouth and say it, (laughs) right? Or ask, don't assume, ask. And if they say no, that's fine. And if the woman says no, or if the woman asks and the guy says no, that's fine. But please give some clarity. Does this mean no, I don't want to ever be exclusive or build into that? Or I need some time, or I'd like to consider these things. And if there is a variable to the pause or a why to the pause, that can be very helpful. Too often, that question alone is so difficult to ask that a general answer back either makes us super happy or super scared, and we don't then figure out what it means after that. Because even a yes probably needs some explanation or some conversation about that. So absence of clarity. If you've been hanging out with someone for three months straight, and it's obvious there's romantic attraction and connection, it'd be nice to at least know they like you, or at least know they're considering something, because that vagueness and that abstractness can just drive you crazy and actually build a ton of anxiety and actually even change the way you think a little bit or feel about that person. I'll let Karen give some more thought on that in a minute because I can see, I can feel her, her neck muscles from behind me that she's wanting to add something. Second one, tension between closeness and separation. Tension between closeness and separation. Almost inevitably, one of you needs more independence than the other. And that's a big difference. So how much time are you going to spend together becomes an enormous variable that creates relational uncertainty. So the one who likes more time and attention with the person, someone like me, will likely pursue pretty strongly to literally be with that person every waking second. That's how I felt when I was so enamored with my future wife. Could I move into her Volkman room? Would that be okay to think the president would allow that? Right? I was just so ready to commit and get involved. And so she's a much more independent, only child for the first 16 years of her life. She needed space. Thankfully, that's when her shark came in very good place because she did have no problems telling me, <laughs> I need my own time tonight. I'm working on my schoolwork for my kids. You need to stay adjusting. All righty. Very clear, very direct. It hurt my feelings plenty of times, but at least I knew where I stood and it made things easy to continue to build and move. So you need to talk those things out. One of you needs more space and that's totally fine. You don't need to be embarrassed or I think you're selfish because you need some eye time. You need a little time to be you because if we're going to be authentic and comfortable, we have to be real about those needs. And as much as you might hate to do it, it helps to structure it a little bit helps to talk through that and even structure. And I encourage couples all the time, even when they're engaged, is like say, hey, one day of the week, let's not be together. You don't need to hang out every single night. Sometimes we do that in this young college stage and we spend so much time together, we have massive shock when we actually have less time together in marriage than we do when we're here. The only big difference is, of course, we're in the same bed, I hope, sleeping together regularly after we're married. Right, that's a big difference. So the proximity of the relationship is there, but you'd be surprised, especially you start throwing some kids in, how much little time you have in your future. So some people are like, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't get it, but trust me, it's important. Boundary issues emotionally, mentally, and physically. If any of those are happening, we need to speak up and speak up directly. Lack of safety, security, and trust. And then lastly, again, a repetitive motion here. You know, I'm not afraid to repeat in different vernacular to get the point home, you gotta be you. Inability to be you is an uncertainty that has to be discussed and shared. 
I guess when you were talking about that very natural desire to want to, when you're falling for someone and you're in those early stages, you want to spend 24-7 with them. That's so natural. I would, I'd say look at that as a good thing and go, wow, I am really feeling that for this person. And this is exciting because you're enjoying so much of who they are that you just want more of that good stuff and that good feeling that you feel when you're together. But as you were talking, Elliot, what struck me is that we do not love our partner in the purest, most respectful way if we look to our partner to meet all our needs. Just because I got married, it's not my husband's job to meet every need. I, and we've all been there, especially girls. I know, ladies, you've been in that situation where you had a good friend and she was like your bestie and then she got her man and then you didn't see her for eight months and then they broke up and she's like, hey, what's going on Friday? You're like, um, I don't know. What have you been doing for the last Fridays, uh, all those Fridays for the last eight months? So there's that tendency sometimes when you are so into someone to expect them to meet all your emotional needs. And that's not very loving. It's also not very respectful to your friends because you just ditch them for your man or for your woman. So, and even in marriage, I don't expect my husband, I mean, this is gonna be really stereotypical, cliched kind of example, but I love, like a lot of women, I love going shopping. I mean, I can take hours and I wanna look at, if I'm, if I'm looking for a purse, I wanna look at seven stores to make sure I get the best purse. Well, maybe that's like how I was with my husband too, because it took me a lot of boyfriends <laughs> to get the best husband. <laughs> okay, I digress. But I don't expect my husband to want to kick it at the mall with me the way my girlfriends would. And it's loving to let him be authentically himself and recognize that I can do that either independently or with one of my friends. Now, that's kind of a, a, a subtle example or a simple example, rather. But the idea is that we, if we go into that, we are fused together, Siamese twins, because we're just so into each other. A, you're going to move toward codependency pretty quickly. It's going to be hard not to get that dynamic in your relationship. B, you're not really loving each other because it's not loving to be like, I got to be with you or else I'm just going to be miserable tonight and not respecting their boundaries. And then C, I think the tendency is that we can get to one of my huge pet peeves and relationships in general. And I know you see it in your marriages. I got married to the love of my life and he is my best friend and he is seriously, like, it was so worth the wait. But it is not his job to make me happy, ever. Does he enhance my happiness with this independent thing that Elliot was doing? Yes, absolutely. He enhances my happiness greatly in this life. But it is not his job to make me happy. I wake up in the morning and God and Karen figure out how to be happy that day. So that's a really key point because if you get in that fuse state, it's very easy to then, I'm miserable today. What didn't you do to make me happy today? And sure. that happens. I know you see it. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Pretty much any couple in crisis that comes in with that kind of preparatory conversation with me, this is our last straw before divorce. They're already there. There's already that fusion. They're so disappointed, so discouraged that this lack of potential happiness is, is significant. The love and life hack for this week is love is not enough, but we can equip ourselves with tools to help us cultivate that deep, lasting intimacy we so desire. Stay tuned for part two of our live, which we'll post soon to learn more strategies for thriving in intimate relationships. 
Also, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at loveandlifemedia.com. We'll be sharing some of Elliot's self-assessments so you can better understand your own relationship style and preferences. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson-April, and until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-April.